Welcome to the Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Still? Still. Okay. Still today? Good, good. I'm glad that we're doing that. Um, what we're doing is we're going through the Nebraska Supreme Court uh, opinions and the Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. Uh, this week, it's for December 20th, 2022, and December 23rd for the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. And uh, we're going to go through them and hopefully help you, help you decide whether you need to go back and look at these in depth. Maybe you can help your clients a little better and uh, maybe just have that knowledge base, which is so important. And I think I forgot to do this on the last one, uh, but what I want to remind you to do is uh, for our disclaimer here, um, just so we can reference it. Go back to episode one, uh, listen to those disclaimers, because I'm not going to repeat them here, uh, but uh, citation uh, to episode one as if fully recited here. Is that sufficient? That's sufficient. I think that we're, uh, that's enough legalese for me. <laughs> okay. Quantum Merut. <laughs> Quantum Merut. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do we got first? We got the Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. What is there? And we start out with State of Nebraska versus Marcus Winston coming out of Lancaster County. Uh, Mr. Winston was convicted of um, manslaughter upon a sudden quarrel and use of firearm to commit a felony. Uh, this was a judgment that was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. Um, fairly straightforward on most of the assignments of error. However, there was an interesting discussion on uh, prosecutorial misconduct and um, a name that was used um, for the defendant throughout the uh, prosecution's uh, case in chief. But they didn't find prosecutorial they, misconduct. They did not okay. find prosecutorial misconduct. There was just an interesting discussion of it. And um, I think, the again, just the... Um, the discussion that they have about it and then what was used and, and uh, what we can reasonably call uh, defendants throughout a trial um, is something that is kind of unique about uh, this case. Interesting. Um, I've got uh, State versus Bent or Bet, Bet Anker. Bet Anker. Bet Anker. Bet Anker. Bet Anker. Hey, that's ben what it Ben-Tenker. Ben-Tenker? I think it's Ben-Tenker. There's no N in there. Bet... We, we stumble it. through this. <laughs> we had it for a second. We had it. Bacanter. Uh, Bacanter. Bacanter. Anyway, um, this uh, defendant here, he was ultimately uh, convicted uh, after a jury trial of first degree false imprisonment, third degree sexual assault, one count of tampering with a witness at a Scottsbluff District Court. Um, he appealed um, alleged sufficiency of evidence, jury instructions that were uh, wrong, and a denial of a mistrial after a statement was made by a prospective juror and that his trial counsel was ineffective for numerous reasons. I won't get into the facts, but um, the juror thing is fairly interesting. They they said they were questioning the jury. Uh, the uh, individual, the veneer person uh, who was in the potential juror, juror um, said his uh, one of his family members and it says inaudible, so I think some of this was mumbling. But he said uh, one of his family members was on trial for something like this, and so he already has his mind made up, and he was biased. And they um, brought him back to the uh, to the bench with the judge, and then the defense attorney and the prosecutor, and they had a more in depth, off the record conversation. Ultimately, that juror was excused, and because of that statement about bias and other things, um, they moved for a mistrial, which was denied. 
And I think this is a good little nugget of law uh, right here. A mistrial is properly granted in criminal case where an event occurs during the course of a trial that is such a nature that is damaging effect cannot be removed by proper admo- ad- admonition or instruction to the jury and thus prevents a fair trial. So it's got to be a big thing. And you got to have to, in order to allege this on appeal, you got to say actual prejudice, which I, how are you going to do that? I don't know. I think that's that's a really high standard in order to say that you were actually prejudiced other than being found guilty because you can't go into the jurors' minds. You can't figure that part out. It has to be some pretty concrete stuff, I think, in order to say you were uh, actually prejudiced by that. And ultimately, everything here was affirmed, and uh, his convictions and sentence was affirmed, and the uh, they found no merit in the ineffective assistance of uh, trial counsel claims. Perfect. Uh, the next case that we come to is State v. Jensen. Uh, this is an appeal um, from the District Court of Sarpy County um, on a uh, first-degree sexual assault case. Um, the um, assignments of error primarily surround uh, trial counsel's um, ineffective assistance of counsel and, and those claims. Uh, the court in this case goes through uh, kind of an interesting discussion uh, where there is a long uh, narrative um, where there is a a long narrative session by the victim uh, during the trial um, where uh, essentially everything that happened is laid out and the trial counsel does not object uh, and the court of appeals tells us here that um, it is not ineffective for counsel to fail to object to a meritless argument. So essentially they said that this was relevant information. It was going to come in. Uh, It was pretty clear from there, from the record, why uh, the trial counsel did not make that objection. And so even though, you know, it was this long damaging uh, narrative section, it wasn't ineffective assistance of counsel for uh, counsel not to, for trial counsel not to object. Um, And then Um, The Court of Appeals uh, got rid of the rest of the claims, uh, either saying that they were uh, without merit or uh, that there was an insufficiency of record, and they uh, went ahead and affirmed uh, the district court. I'm I'm sensing a theme uh, with today's cases, because with the Court of Appeals at least, uh, because I have another uh, criminal case, uh, basically excessive sentence that was ultimately affirmed. This one was uh, Kellogg, State v. Kellogg, and um, he pled no contest to one count of attempted possession of a deadly weapon by a prohibited person. And in Douglas County, he was sentenced to 22 to 28 years imprisonment. And he claims that his sentence was excessive and that he received ineffective assistance of trial counsel. And, um, you know, it w- it's within the statutory limit. It's going to get affirmed uh, unless something weird is going on. I, I didn't look at anything in here that uh, pointed to anything weird, and so it was affirmed ultimately, and they found no merit in his appeals. Then we come to, um, in the interest of Camden and Camden R. and Cadence R., um, a juvenile case out of the county court for Dawson County. Um, again, kind of an interesting discussion. Uh, here, the uh, court was changing the permanency goal of uh, these two minor children uh, to adoption. Um, the nugget that I kind of took from here, and again, there's a, a good discussion on uh, some of the the 
uh, claims that the parent was making for why that permanency goal should not have been changed uh, regarding, again, reasonable efforts. Um, but then the important piece in the discussion kind of came in, uh, which is an, an interesting area of uh, juvenile law, I think, which is um, the exception to uh, filing for termination of parental rights. Uh, one of those exceptions that exists is, um, again, if a, a child has been placed out of home for 15 or more months out of the most recent 22 months, um, then a petition to terminate parental rights uh, shall be filed, but it is not required to be filed if a child is being cared for by a relative. Um, in this case, the uh, one of the two children that had met the 15 out of 22 months requirement uh, was with a relative placement. Uh, one of the children had not yet been in foster care long enough to meet that 15 months out of 22. Um, however, the uh, county court and the court of appeal says uh, that the county court correctly found uh, that even though that exception does exist, it does not preclude the state from filing a termination of parental rights uh, should that 15 out of 22 months expire. So even if a child is with a relative placement, that doesn't uh, create a situation where a clock can run forever. Uh, it simply is a way to find an exception. It is a grounds to find an exception. Um, it is not uh, essentially a stay forever of changing that permanency goal uh, or moving forward on a uh, petition to terminate uh, parental rights. Interesting. So they affirmed? They affirmed. Okay. Uh, similarly affirmed, although this next one uh, is a little bit of a quirk Ooh. with today's. They, they buried some goods. Um, State v. Jones. This is uh, December 20th, 2022. This is actually an appeal uh, from the state, um, an interlocutory appeal following the um, granting of a motion to suppress and the district court order uh, affirmed the grant of the motion to discredit. Uh, um, excuse me, the district court granted the motion to suppress and then the Nebraska Court of Appeals um, was affirmed, or excuse me, affirmed that district court order. What we have here is a Douglas County um, criminal matter where one defendant was admitted to having marijuana on their person uh, driving a car. They say, yeah, I have marijuana on me after they're stopped. And they used that admission of having marijuana on their person to as probable cause to search a passenger. Um, the district court correctly found that you can't do that. And uh, they found that based on the United States Supreme Court holding that uh, saying that we are not convinced that a person by mere presence in a suspected car loses immunities from search or his person to which he would otherwise be entitled. So just because you're in a car with somebody who has weed in their pocket or whatever doesn't mean um, you're going to be searched or you can be searched. They also, the, the person who ended up being searched um, admitted to having a pocket knife. Well, it's not illegal to have a pocket knife in your pocket and you told the officer when they were patting you down that that's what you had. So that's what they were doing. And um, they distinct, this distinction here I think that the prosecutor was getting hung up on was, well, when there's when you can smell marijuana in the car, then you can search everybody. I think that's that's what he was saying or, the, or she was saying. Um, when you smell marijuana in the car, you can search everybody. But, you know, in this instance, it's one person saying, I have marijuana on my person. That doesn't uh, translate into probable cause to search everybody. So I think that's an a interesting discussion here. Ultimately, that was affirmed and uh, the um, evidence was suppressed. What happened after that, we never know. But uh, in this instance... Um, 
that was uh, the ultimate holding of the Nebraska Court of Appeals. Onto the Supreme Court. I think we're onto the Supreme Court. All right, twenty uh, third of December. The twenty third of December, which uh, again rolled out um, what I believe is a very interesting uh, criminal opinion, uh, State versus. Alberenga is how I'm going to pronounce that. I don't know if that's correct, but uh, perfect. We'll, we'll shoot for it. Interesting facts here, fairly straightforward, um, but result in, uh, again, some very unique law being applied. Uh, Alberenga is at a stoplight where there is a left turn arrow. The left turn arrow is red and is um, a solid red. Alberenga stops at the red turn arrow, um, waits, and then uh, proceeds to turn left while the uh, left turn arrow is still red. Uh, they are pulled over by a law enforcement officer. I believe this was in Lincoln. I believe this is a Lancaster County case. Uh, pulled over. Um, officer uh, you know, has an interdiction, uh, you know, smells alcohol, proceeds with a DUI stop. Uh, eventually, there's a, a blood alcohol test you know, found over the legal limit. Uh, Alberenga is uh, convicted of both uh, DUI and um, of uh, DUI and the underlying traffic infraction. However, the kind of unique uh, situation here is that there is a Nebraska statute um, that says that a uh, one that a, a city ordinance is pre- preempted. Um, when a vehicle is facing a steady red arrow at the intersection of a two of two one-way streets and is prohibited from turning left at any time while the arrow remains red, and um, that is the issue of uh, whether this uh, city ordinance that said that you cannot turn left at all on a uh, red turning arrow was preempted by a Nebraska statute that said if there is a solid red turning arrow, you have to stop but then you can proceed cautiously and continue to turn uh, left on that arrow. Um, the uh, Nebraska um, revised statute and the city ordinance were found to be in conflict first at the uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals. Uh, however, the Court of Appeals found that the uh, city ordinance was controlling as it was more specific uh, in regards to the red arrow indications. So it uh, the Court of Appeals says, okay, the ordinance applies here. Uh, the stop was good. The infraction's good. The DUI is good. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, founds, finds the exact opposite. The Supreme Court reverses the Court of Appeals in finding that the city ordinance is preempted uh, because this is an area of law that uh, the Nebraska legislature intended uh, to control here um, and that the... Um, that the uh, individual did not violate the uh, arrow stop because Nebraska statute applied instead. Oh, but oh, okay. So end of story. Case dismissed. Yeah, it's right? done. Yeah, we we just get to end it there. No DUI. No good stop. No. I mean, right? W- wait a minute. Oh, but no. Oh, yeah. Now we have the, the but 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 yeah. now we have the buts. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the Supreme Court says here that the arresting officer had reasonably had reasonably relied on this city ordinance and found that since it was objectively reasonable to stop the car based on this uh, city ordinance, then the officer had probable cause to uh, generate the traffic stop and 
continue with the DUI, and therefore, even though there was no traffic infraction, uh, the DUI stood. Uh, an interesting little uh, tidbit of legal wisdom here, I guess, from our uh, Nebraska Supreme Court is that probable cause does not require officers to be legal scholars. So they simply need to uh, be objectively reasonable when stopping you for something. And even though this was not an infraction, it was objectively reasonable for them to stop that individual and, um, again, to uh, create this traffic stop. As a legal scholar, um, you think it takes a legal scholar to know that the state statute trumps the city ordinance? Or has that not been, was that not clear beforehand? Well, you know, I don't know if it was clear beforehand, but the interesting piece would be is that if it wasn't a crime at the time, then how can you stop someone for something that's not a crime? Uh, I think we're showing our bias. I mean, a isn't bit. that a difficulty? <laughs> but uh, either, our bias is finally showing. Either way, um, I think there are from a, a practice standpoint and uh, just from a, uh, an analysis standpoint, sure. I think even non-criminal practitioners, uh, this is a really interesting area where we deal with preemption and what is preempted and how do we uh, wrestle with, uh, you know, having entire areas of the law that are preempted versus uh, statutes that are actually in direct conflict. And then um, for criminal practitioners, you know, the objective for what is a, uh, what is the standard for an objectively reasonable stop? Even if again, someone's not committing a, Crime. That's, that, that's mushy, right? It's super mushy. So you got to you got to raise the issue. You got to figure it out, and you got to see what the uh, court says, right? I mean, that's that's all there is to it, unless you can figure something else out. But I mean, some one person's legal scholar is another person's you know minimum competence, right? I, I would think uh, under those circumstances. Well, absolutely, and I, I would think this is an area where you could get into it quite often because it, it's fairly easy to pass a city ordinance. And so the key is to just pay attention to what's in the statutes. What is the ordinance that you're dealing with, that your your underlying ordinance that your client may have violated? And is it in conflict? And, and then what's it do? Yeah, dig a little. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, anything else on that one? Nothing else on that That's one. That's a good one. Um, this one is uh, a, a different one. It's uh, from December 23rd, 2022. It's at Tanya Edwards as assignee of Douglas County, Nebraska, a political subdivision. Uh uh, the appellant and then the estate of Kenneth Clark and uh, Mark uh, Malusik a person as personal representative of the estate of Kenneth Clark. So um, really, I'm just going to touch on this. It's a pretty heavy uh, opinion. Um, the, it was ultimately affirmed, but what happened is they were suing um, under the political subdivision tort claims act for some kind of subrogation. The, uh, the County was, and then um, for having to defend some uh, pretty serious uh, factual allegations and, and negligence that they, they thought may have occurred. And then it was ultimately dismissed for failure to state a claim uh, following a motion to dismiss. And um, that's, that's pretty much all I want to go into on this one. It's if you, if you have do some state civil work or you have a wrongful death action, um, that may be worth a, a look at. But unless it involves a political subdivision, uh, it's probably um, may not be uh, worth your time. Who knows? There Perfect. You go. Yeah. Hey, uh, point two. How do we do? A little over. I mean, we'll get there, right? We're getting closer. We're getting closer. Okay. Anything else? Any? Oh, we got one more. We opinion. got one more quick. Great. Yes. Let's do it. Um, 
So Jacob versus uh, Nebraska Board of Parole. Uh, This is a mandamus action under the public record statute asking the Board of Parole to disclose um, the record of informal and then the first step uh, parole review proceedings. Uh, The Supreme Court essentially says there that the review isn't a public hearing. The individual uh, file is expressly confidential. And so neither of those things had to be uh, reviewed. Um, And then the other interesting piece at the very end of the opinion was that uh, Jacob had sought uh, leave to amend. And uh, our Supreme Court says there that pro se parties are held to the same standards as someone who is represented by counsel um, in getting leave to amend or something uh, like that in in an appellate setting. And I think that's uh, kind of a uh, common but uh, interesting stance and statement there at the end of the opinion. Did they give him leave to amend? No. Okay. Well, there you go. If you having girl problems, I, feel bad I guess. Son. I mean, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Um, so we're going to leave it there, and we're going to say um, have a great, great uh, day wherever you're at, right? Yeah. Great commute. Great. I know you're worried, but this is edited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I can see in your face. But uh, I, I chose the edited version. We're fine. Um, but what I want to say is uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, with a with a new one, uh, or at least we'll look at the ne- opinions from the next week. And um, this is Point Two Law Review, brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt offices in Holdridge, Kearney, and Minden. Um, Carson, anything else? John, nothing, nothing else. else. Hey, let's go. Wonderful. Hey, see you next week. Have Thanks, a good day. everybody. Yep. Bye bye.